0: Thank you, Dottie. And thank you, worship team and grace singers. Can't wait to hear the program tonight. And good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's word together. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of reading it and studying it. We pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes today that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. I heard it twice this week. One person saying they couldn't quite get into the mood of Christmas this year. Another person said, I'm having a really hard time getting into the Christmas spirit this year. And I understood both comments. One person was going through some very difficult, difficult health issues, and the other person who was wearing a Grinch shirt is sort of a Grinch anyway. But it got me to thinking about how people view Christmas and how little or how much of the biblical story of Jesus' birth plays into it, and maybe it's because we're working off of a Incorrect definition. The spirit of Christmas as we know it in our culture, that of uh, happy feelings and comfortable surroundings and decorations and even giving and receiving, while based in part on biblical truth, is so different from the true biblical meaning of Christmas. And to get to the heart of it, we need to look at this biblical account of the birth of Jesus. But let me ask you, how do you picture the birth of Jesus Christ. Do you view it as you view your nativity scene that's on your, your, uh, your table at your house or on your mantle? All clean and neat and tidy and perfectly arranged? Now the birth of Jesus was perfectly arranged by God. But it was not clean. It was not neat. It was not tidy. It was messy. It was gritty. It was confusing. It was unsettling. Imagine this. A young woman, engaged, unmarried, and pregnant. Saying she had just heard a message from an angel telling her that the baby that was in her womb is God. What would you think? Sure you did. And how about this? The woman you love and plan to marry is pregnant and you are not the father. Your hopes and dreams come crashing down. You hear the talk on the street. This was the human situation surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And what follows is the true account of what happened. It's interesting, that word in verse 18, the birth of Jesus, is the Greek word genesis. The same word that's used in verse 1 for genealogy. This is the genesis, the genealogy, the origin of Jesus Christ. And to understand what Mary and Joseph were going through, we need to understand what marriage meant to them in those days. You see, in those days, marriages were usually arranged. And they were arranged by the families of the bride and the groom, often without input from the bride and the groom. How would you like that? A little arranged marriage going on. Now, what would happen is this. A contract was made and sealed. There would be a payment of a dowry by the groom or his family to the bride's family, to the father, and this was to compensate the father for wedding expenses and also provide for the bride should the marriage... Not work out. Now, this contract was binding as soon as it was signed. The couple was considered legally married, even though the ceremony and the consummation of the marriage would not occur until a year later. Now, why was this? Because in Jewish culture, there was a two part uh, marriage situation. There were two stages. The first was betrothal, that was the first stage. It usually lasted for a year. And it was before the wedding night. It was more legal than engagement. And it was as binding as marriage. In fact, a divorce was necessary to cancel a betrothal. So the couple would be considered husband and wife even before they came together. And the betrothal period was really a sort of of, uh, probationary period to test the fidelity of the couple. And during this one-year period, this couple would have little or no social contact with one another. Now, the second stage of marriage in those days was the actual marriage ceremony. If the one-year period demonstrated the fidelity and purity of the bride, what the husband would do is he would go to the house of the parents of the bride. He would collect his bride and then lead a grand processional march back to his home and there they would begin living together as husband and wife and consummate the marriage that was the situation and so here you have mary and joseph betrothed they're going to be married but mary becomes pregnant during the betrothal period since he knew it was he wasn't the father humanly speaking it would be natural for joseph to assume that Mary had been unfaithful, that she had committed adultery. And in those days, the legal remedy for adultery was death by stoning. Now, we know that Mary was innocent. We know that Mary was pure, that she had been faithful. But Joseph, whether he knew it or not, had decided that not going through with the marriage would be the best course of action. So what do we read about Joseph? In verse 19 we read he was a righteous man. He was, by implication, correct, innocent. And the phrase, a righteous or just man, pointed to the fact that he was a true believer in God Almighty. He would have carefully obeyed the law. His righteousness, in fact, showed itself in two ways. The first was, he had high moral standards. Now Joseph... Deciding to divorce Mary was reacting like any righteous man would in those days. His heart, can you imagine, must have been broken, crushed. Now secondly, his righteousness was shown in his love and in his kindness. He genuinely loved Mary and so what he did is he desired to protect her from further disgrace. He demonstrated his love by his actions. Joseph was merciful. He wanted to put her away, which meant that he would legally divorce her. But he chose not to create a public scandal by bringing her and exposing her before the judges at the city gate, who would most likely uh, command her to be stoned. Instead, to minimize her disgrace, he decided to divorce her privately, He would do so in the presence of two or three witnesses, as Deuteronomy chapter 24 states. But he could not in good conscience, as a righteous, loving, kind, and merciful man, expose Mary to further disgrace. He did not want to make a show of Mary. He did not want to expose her. Now, she was already disgraced in the eyes of many. Joseph himself was shamed. But he decided... To show his concern for Mary and not himself. In verse 20 we read that Joseph had seriously considered this. He had made up his mind. He was going in a certain direction. He was going to go through with canceling the marriage. And what happens? An angel appears to him in a dream. Isn't it interesting how often in the Bible when when God intervenes in human affairs. How everything changes. Well, here, the angel speaks to Joseph and changes his direction. Now, there are only a few angelic visitations of this kind in the New Testament. Most of them around the context of the birth of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are five such dreams where God reveals His will to people through um, the the uh, voices or an angel in a dream. In this chapter, in in verse 20, he assures Joseph of Mary's innocence, of her purity through this dream. In chapter 2, verse 13, he tells them to flee to Egypt because Herod was going to try to kill Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 19, he tells them to return to Israel. Herod had died, looked like the coast was clear, but then he also warns them in verse 22 not to go to Judea. Instead, they go to Nazareth. Again, to fulfill scripture that he would be called a Nazarene. And then, in verse 12 of that same chapter, the wise men are warned by God in a dream not to go uh, the way they were going because Herod was going to try to kill Jesus. But the angel here gives assurance to Joseph of, Mary, of Mary's innocence. That she is pure. She is not guilty of adultery. The angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She was chosen by the predetermined plan of God to be the mother of Jesus. Hers would be a virgin birth. Which, as we saw last week, protected both Christ's sinlessness as well as his deity. That she would have a baby. That baby would be born, would be named Jesus... The Savior, and that He would save His people from their sins. Now, as Joseph was listening to this message, as he was receiving this message from God through this angel, he had to have been reminded of words he had heard, the promise that God had given him to bring salvation through the new covenant, as Jeremiah chapter 31 had stated. And J- the angel here is telling him that the prophecy would be fulfilled. In verse 22, we read that this would be fulfillment of prophecies spoken long before. In fact, Matthew's gospel points to the fulfillment of 12 prophecies from the Old Testament. And he quotes the Old Testament over over 50 times more than any other New Testament writer except for Paul in the book of Romans. And the prophet in verse 22 is Isaiah, who over 700 years earlier had prophesied that a virgin would be with child. Now at the time it was to King Ahaz, a a wicked king, who was told by God to ask for a sign he would not. So God said, I will give you a sign then that the virgin will be with child, will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. It's interesting that Old Testament scholars dispute the word Alma in the Hebrew, whether it should be translated young woman or virgin. But the New Testament clarifies that completely because... God intended it here to mean virgin, as the Greek word parthenos uh, clearly states and shows. But what happens is that in verse 23, the angel also says, this will be God with us, this child, God in the flesh, God incarnate. And to be sure, there would be misunderstanding in the community. Gossip would abound. People would assume, as Luke 3.23 states, that Jesus was the son of Joseph. But Joseph knew the truth. Joseph knew the truth about Mary's pregnancy and he knew the truth about God's will for his life. Both Mary and Joseph someday uh, and the people would recognize Jesus as God incarnate. Those are the facts of the birth of Christ. And in this story, as we see Joseph's response, we see Joseph's obedience to God. In verse 24, we read that Joseph woke up from the dream and obeyed the command. Interesting, you go back to verse 20, and I hadn't thought of the command, that it being a command. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. But verse 24 tells us that this was a command of God. It was not a suggestion. You know, maybe you might want to consider marrying Mary. This was a command. This was not a possible choice that was before him. And God was commanding and his choice would either be to obey or to disobey. Now Mary, as we saw last week in Luke chapter 1, received a declaration, not a command. The angel told her, this is how it will be for you. And it called for her acceptance. The angel tells Joseph, though, this is what you must do. And this called for his obedience. Now, how was Joseph's obedience revealed? Well, it was manifested in visible, tangible action on his part. We see in verse 24 that he married Mary. He, instead of divorcing her, changed his mind, listened to God, and went through with the marriage ceremony. It shows radical obedience on Joseph's part. Because the wording here signifies that that marriage ceremony happened right away. As soon as possible, Joseph went and took Mary and had the ceremony, and they were married, husband and wife. He broke all customs, married her before the year's waiting period was up. There's another thing he did. We see it in verse 25. It says, He kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. What we see here is that he set aside his own desires and honored God and honored Mary. He waited to consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born, thereby agreeing with, ensuring, and protecting the virgin birth. In fact, Luke, in chapter 2 of Luke, gives more details about the birth of Jesus. In fact, says that Mary uh, gave birth to her firstborn signifying that there were other children born to Mary. And obviously the fact that that Joseph waited to consummate the marriage means that Mary did not stay a perpetual virgin. Now the third thing that Joseph did is that he named Jesus. The blessing of blessings. He bows before God's throne. He gives the baby the name chosen by his heavenly father. Joseph obediently followed the predetermined plan of God. He was an instrument in the hands of God to fulfill his promises. See, God's call necessitates obedience. Joseph needed to act upon what he had heard. Visible, tangible action in obedience to God. And what that did was it revealed in Joseph a heart of obedience. When we look beyond our preconceived notions of Christmas, how does obedience capture the true spirit of Christmas? I don't know if you've ever thought about uh, obedience in the context of Christmas, but it's at its heart. The first thing, I want to share three things. The first thing about this is that obedience is all about surrender. That God revealed himself and his will to Joseph. And it did call for radical obedience on Joseph's part. And that the world, his immediate context, would call him crazy, would call him foolish, would call him weak, would say he was a doormat, but God would call him blessed. Joseph obeyed God's instructions versus his immediate worldly wisdom ideas, his culture, or his peers. He let himself be influenced by the Spirit of God. He let himself as Romans 12.2 says, be transformed by the renewing of his mind. God gave him a message. He decided to act upon that message, and he acted and thought differently as a result. God's calling on our lives calls for radical obedience on our part. And obedience is surrendering to the will of God. You see, we learn obedience as Joseph did as we are faced with circumstances beyond our control and for which we don't have resources on our own. Our response to God's calling is a test, really, of our understanding of God's heart, whether we will resist or whether we will become resentful or whether we will allow ourselves to be trained to let God make us what He wants us to be. Every challenge we face is an opportunity to surrender and enter into closer fellowship with our self-denying, suffering Savior. Now, the second thing about the heart of obedience, first, that it's surrender. Secondly, is that it is about ministry, not manipulation. Serving God and man unselfishly. And Joseph did that. He gave up his decision to divorce Mary. He embraced God's choice of her and him and went with God's plan. He did not consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. And what we see Joseph doing is choosing to minister to the needs of Mary rather than thinking of his own desires. Elizabeth Elliot said, When the will of man crosses the will of God, someone has to die. Now what was Joseph dying to as he obeyed God's command? Humanly speaking, he was dying to his reputation. He was dying to his desires and his dreams. He was dying to his life. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Joseph was doing, he embodied what Jesus did. This baby that he would care for, would grow up to be a man who came to save sinners. And what Joseph did is he chose to minister, not manipulate. Now, I'm probably not the best guy to be up here talking about not manipulating, because I do it all the time. But see, I do it on the sly. I do it by stealth. I suddenly try to change things to make them go the way I'd like them to go. In my better moments, I pray, Lord, thy will be done. And I know we all struggle with this as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as sisters and brothers, as pastors and elders and church members and family and friends. That every day we are faced with a choice. And that every day we are tempted to manipulate rather than to minister unselfishly. To work situations and circumstances out the way we would like them to go. But God has called all believers into a life of selfless ministry. Do you remember when God called you into ministry? And you can't say, by the way, that you're not called into ministry. Because every born-again believer, at the moment when they are born again by the Spirit of God, are called into ministry, a life of service. First, to your own household, to those God has given you to shepherd and to disciple and to teach. As parents, to our own children, to teach them the Word of God, to pray with them. As husbands and wives to one another. And then in in concentric circles to the rest of the people that we're close to, those in our small group and, and on and out into not only the body, but out into the world, to serve unselfishly and to not manipulate. There's one last thing about obedience. It's about reaping what we sow. Because we will either sow corruption or blessing. Obedient hearts like Joseph's experience God's blessing. You see, obedience reaps blessing. When we ob- live obediently to God's command, we have His approval. He is pleased. The blessing of God is upon those who obey Him. Jesus said in John 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. Paul is talking about the eternal and the temporal. And in that context, as he says that we walk by faith and not by sight, in verse 9 he says, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether we go home to be with Jesus or whether we're here still on earth, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. And then if you drop down to verse 14, It says the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, if we surrender to God's plan, if we minister and not manipulate, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. In fact, go to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, we are instructed to not be deceived. We are told that God is not mocked. In verse 7 we read, "...for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will will from the flesh reap corruption." But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap, if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, the biblical spirit of Christmas is exemplified in acceptance of God's choices in obedience to his calling. Mary's response, as we saw last week, was glad acceptance. Joseph's was obedience. He surrendered to God. He ministered to the needs of others and he reaped what he sowed as the birth of Christ was confirmed. You see, Joseph and Mary really did what we are called to do. They trusted and they obeyed. Quite simply, they trusted and obeyed. And what did God do? God sent a wonderful blessing to them and to us. Jesus. See, Jesus was called to the cross. Jesus went to the cross. You see, we embrace the real spirit of Christmas when we grasp this truth. That God's program of redemption is filled with love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was, it's filled with grace and with love and also obedience. Obedience. Though Jesus was a son, the scriptures tell us he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That he demonstrated radical obedience to the plan of God. Through one man's disobedience, Romans 5.19 tells us, death came upon all, but through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Jesus surrendered his life, ministered to our need, and reaped eternal life for us. And we receive the benefits. We reap the benefits. We receive God's blessing. Because Jesus took our curse on the cross. We are blessed because Jesus led the way for us. That Christ chose not a palace of a king, but a humble stall for the place of his birth. And lowly Nazareth for his earthly dwelling. The grace of God appeared that first Christmas to save us. Jesus, the righteous one. He covered our disgrace with grace. And to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are righteous, that you are good, that you are holy, and that you have a plan. And we thank you, Lord God, for your grace that helps us to obey, that enables us to obey, because on our own we can do nothing, but we can do all things to Christ who strengthens us. Lord God, we lay ourselves before You. We ask for Your will to be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me as we close our time together this morning. I want to read to you the words of angels at the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. God bless you. Have a wonderful day and hope to see you tonight.